<laughs> That's awesome. No better way to start our morning. Well, good morning, Northern Hills Church. It is great to be with you here uh, this morning. Um, I would love to, this, this morning's message has a little weight to it. So I'd love to pray just before we get started. God, just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege of being able to celebrate life transformation. And Lord, now I just ask that you would just speak through me, Lord. Speak through me in a powerful way to each of our hearts that we would look to be changed by you and only you in this space, God. We give you all the credit. We give you all the glory. And we pray these things in your great name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, again, my name is Brandon. If I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, I want to meet you at some point. I'm our connections pastor here at the church, which just is another fancy way to say I uh, get people plugged in and hopefully, uh, whether it's through opportunities to connect with others here at the church, serving at the church, that's sort of my role. And then I have an opportunity every now and again to teach as well. And so it's great being with you online, welcoming those that are joining us online as well. Um, I got to tell you, I come from the graduate... Uh, or I graduated, excuse me, from the school of a place I call Hard Knocks, and it was called the Hand-Me-Down Hard Knocks, all right? How many of you actually were part of that school? Did you get hand-me-downs growing up? Wait, raise it online, raise it in the room this morning. Did you ever get the hand-me-down clothes from some siblings? I see some hands in the room, see some people that also graduated from that school. Here's the deal. I was an only child, <laughs> so it frustrated me a little to get hand-me-downs, and it's because I'm an only child, spoiled brat. I think that's part of my journey and just sort of how I'm associated with those clothes. Is uh, I, I was always frustrated when my mom would get me the hand-me-downs because I'm like, I'm the only child. I don't have a sibling to share any clothes with. Why don't I just get the new stuff? Why can't I get the latest, greatest? And so it was a little frustrating when she had that friend at work that had the older kid, and so he was getting me the hand-me-down jeans, or maybe that older cousin of mine that had the torn-up sweater a little bit, and now I'm going to wear that sweater. And I just didn't want to be outed in school or anywhere that I would run into somebody and like, hey, that's my, that's my old shirt, or that's my old pair of jeans. And I just felt like I should always get the new things. My grandma didn't help with this, by the way, too. She spoiled me rotten. But needless to say, my mom gave me some really good reasons around it. See, she was a single mother. And she's trying to save and pinch pennies and, and do all those kinds of things. And so she would inevitably say, hey, this just saves us a little money in different seasons, and that's a good thing. And, I, and so that was something I completely understood. But then she would try to pull one over on me, you know, as I'm in my age 10, 11 years of, of formative learning. And she'd be the, yeah, you know what? And we're also just trying to do the earth you know, uh, a solid as well here, Brandon. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> She's like, well, it's recycling, and you know, it's new to you, and so you, you should enjoy the clothes. And I'm like, mom, we don't recycle at all around here. We don't save cans. We don't have any, you know, bins or anything kind of deal. But she was always trying to make a case of why we were doing what we were doing. Again, she was a single mom. I appreciate where she was coming from. I'll be honest with you. I look back now. The reason I hated the hand-me-downs is I was just afraid. I was afraid what it was going to mean when I went to school and I wore something that it was going to tell something about the worth of our family, our solid little family, just my mom and I growing up together, right? It was going to tell us uh, the status to other individuals in the, cl uh, in the classroom or at my school of where we were and maybe some of the hard times we were having, uh, how we didn't stack up or maybe how I didn't stack up, how I didn't measure up, how I didn't matter to the world. And we've all been there, whether we've walked into a middle school or when we walked into a high school, or even this Sunday morning where we walked in to a church uh, and just like, oh, what's, what, do people know me here? Do people know my story? Uh, and we begin to question, am I important? Do I have value? 
And so I was afraid. I was afraid of the hand-me-downs. Now, as an adult, I know that it's okay to get hand-me-down clothes. In fact, we've, we've informed our kids on that school, and they're part of that school with one another, borrowing from other friends and whatnot for, for just clothes and just to save some bucks if we can, right? It's okay to get hand-me-down clothes, but are you afraid of hand-me-down sins? Have you ever thought of the hand-me-down sins that you receive from your family or from loved ones? See, we're in week four of this entire relationship reset series, and we've been navigating all kinds of different waters, talking to married couples, talking to singles, talking just about relationships in general. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to talk about a difficult subject, but I think an appropriate subject of how do we let go of the recycled flaws of our family? How do we break free of generational patterns of our family, generational sin in our family? And that may be a term you've either heard before, but you never really brought definition to. Maybe you've even heard it in the church world a little bit. But what are the things that are holding you back? I'll give, there's numerous definitions for generational sin. I'll give one this morning, maybe an easy one to grasp onto. It's a weakness or a brokenness that is handed down to us through our family, through our parents, through individuals that we've grown up with and and have that sphere of influence that has surrounded us. So it's handed down brokenness. So how do we we recover from those things? Do we even know about what those things are? Have we been able to look at our future and grasp maybe for a reset of what we want to see happening within our loved ones that will come after us, take steps towards lasting change? That's what we want to answer. How do we break free from generational family sin? Maybe something that we don't even realize, something that we do inadvertently even without realizing we're doing those sins. And in all of that, what we know sin to do, what we know sin to be, is something that holds us back from God's greatness, holds us back from his greatness for our lives. But I want to give us encouragement to kick things off this morning. See, we're not the first to deal with this, and we won't be the last to deal with this either. I want to show us something here in Genesis chapter 26 this morning. This is our main text we're going to walk through, and read this small episode that we're going to spend time in. It's a small episode of the life of Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, when we read this, we're going to see this is an example of what all of us deal with here today. It says this in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you, and here we go, your descendants, I will give all of these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all of these lands. And through their offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. And so Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. And so when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window, and he saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Verse 9, 
So Abimelech summoned Isaac. So what he does here is he basically calls out Isaac. He's like, okay, bro, let's, let's not fool one another here. If that's your sister, we have some problems going on, okay? There's a little funkiness going on. We know this is your wife. And so he says, she is really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. See, Abimelech was the king of the Philistines at this time in Gerar. Then he was far from God. I don't know about you, but it's a bad day when this individual who's far from God knows better than the people of God how we ought to follow God. Now, as we get our heads and our hearts just wrapped around this idea of hand-me-down sins, I just want us to tackle this from four different angles. And the first word I want you to write down, the, the angle I want us to take is the receive part. Just write down the word receive if you're taking notes. How do we receive hand-me-down sins? How do we end up in one day this spiritual groundhog day, a perpetual motion of wash, rinse, repeat, and we're sort of doing the same things that we grew up with that we didn't really ever want to do, or we drew a line in the sand maybe saying, I will never ever, and then we find ourselves doing exactly those things, right? Now, I go to a counselor regularly. Um, uh, My counselor, uh, I was seeing a lot more in 2021. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I was making some difficult decisions in that season, but I still check in with my counselor from time to time, and uh, they'll ask me a question that gets me, this question just frustrates me. Uh, uh, She'll ask me the question of like, I'll, I'll, I'll be mentioning something along the lines of what's going on in my life. Here's what I'm dealing with at work. Here's what's going on in the office. Here's what my wife Jenny said, and it's frustrating. Or here's what something the kids said, and now I'm, you know, pulling my hair out. And my counselor will always ask, where does that come from? Which makes me just look at her and like, that's what I paid you to tell me. Like, you know, we're <laughs> you tell me what's going on here. This is why you're getting paid, right? But I know another way is what she's trying to reference with that is how old does this feel, Brandon? How old does this feel for, uh, for you? Is this something that, uh, that you can go back to? How long, does this, how long has this been a pattern? Where is this thing that, that's rising up in you? Where does it stem from? Where does it come from? And for Isaac, as we read Genesis 26, as we're reading this, if a counselor were to sit down with him as he's in this process of abandoning something, I think that same question would be asked. See, he's abandoning the promised land. He's heading to Egypt I don't know if you know this, but when we head to the things, to our Egypts of our lives, of our personal worlds, what it means for the Christ follower, what it means for the Christian is that we are going to a place that God has called us to walk away from. When we're heading back to Egypt, what we're heading back to is slavery. What we're heading back to is bondage. What we're heading back to is maybe stories we've told ourselves long ago, present day, and it's even prevailing in our future thoughts. When we walk back to Egypt, we walk back into slavery, and that may be Egypt can be religion for you. Not a relationship with God, but a legalistic way to live with God. Maybe Egypt is just outright sin for you. 
the place you escape to, the place you run back to, and that bondage, that slavery of the thing that you think is going to fill the gap in place of Christ. Egypt is always us walking back to which Christ has asked us to walk away from. And so Isaac's in this moment. And if the counselor were to ask him, hey, bro, where does this come from? I don't believe he'd even historically be able to sum it up with his own lifetime. Because here's what Isaac is doing. He's doing something that if we look back to his father, it was something his father did before him. If you look to Genesis 12, we can see the origin of what is going on here. Genesis 12, verse 10, it says this, now there was a famine in the land. Keep in mind, Isaac isn't even born yet. And Abram, who would become Abraham, went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Now see, this is Abram talking to his wife, Sarai, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Same sin, new situation. Old pattern, new expression. And if you look at Genesis 20, Almost the exact same thing happens again in the life of Abraham. So what is Isaac doing? He's inadvertently replaying old tapes, which some of us are really good at. And I'm not just talking about the remix versions that we listen to. I'm talking about the old tapes that we play again in our head over time, and he's replaying these tapes. Why is he doing it? Why, Isaac? Why, why, why? It's because of crisis. There's a famine going on. And what do we associate with a famine but heat? There's heat within a famine, and that heat causes friction. And when we get into stress-filled situations, when the heat starts boiling up in our own lives and suddenly there's a little pressure, what happens? We find out what's really inside of us. We find out what's really going inside of us and what's happening underneath, right? You've all seen the iceberg analogy. The tip of the iceberg you can see, but under that waterline, there is something far greater, something massive, something big going on. And many of the things that we have in our lives, generational sin, it has remained buried in us until activated. Stress doesn't change people. We might want to fall back on that, the idea that people, uh, they lost a marriage because of this financial crisis or this sexual crisis. No. A crisis, yes, it'll make a weak marriage weaker, but a crisis will also make a strong marriage stronger. Crisis doesn't alter who you are. It reveals who you are. And that's just the truth when things come up in our lives, the things that come out for others to see. If you bump a cup over, you're all of a sudden seeing what was in the cup. You see what was on the inside. And many of us have discovered that over our past few years or many, many years, there is some dysfunction that we sort of knew about that we could sort of highlight. But some of those stressors of life just bring that to bear that much more. Isaac, when stress activated him, these things that were inside of him, they came to the surface. There was this instant reaction like his father before him, I got to run back to Egypt. I got to go back to bondage and slavery and the thing that's going to make me feel comfortable. And so he's practicing deceit. He's telling a lie about his wife. 
Now, this is just the deal. Here's this, this is just real talk when it comes to generational sin. It is easier for us to copy the sins of our family than to come up with new sins on our own. Have you ever thought about that? I don't think we're just this ingenuity-minded uh, people that could just come up with brand new things all the time. I know we got a lot of smart people in this room and watching online, but when it comes to sin, it's very easy to copy the sins of our family than to come up with new patterns of sin or new things that we're just putting on the map. Peter Scazzaro, an author, says it this way. It's a troubling quote. Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. <laughs> it's disturbing, but true. I love my grandpa. I love all the things he did for me to sacrifice for me again growing up in an only uh, a single mother household. But my grandpa's an old cuss too. I've told some stories about him here on Sunday mornings. And that old cuss, that's this guy. Grandpa's in my bones. All of us carry things that inadvertently in a crisis, in stress, it's easy for those things to spring out. Why does this happen so often? Why do we have father after father and mother after mother perpetuating these things, especially those that have chosen to follow Jesus? And here's why, is because God is a generational God. You may have never heard that before this morning, but God is a generational God. It means that we are in his image and that all of the forces in play from a generational God, for better or for worse, are us. It means that a generational God that looked at the garden and perfection in Adam and Eve, that's part of our image. And then also part of our image is the brokenness that resides post-garden in a world that has sin and brokenness and all those things involved in it. And for better or for worse, God is a generational God which makes us his generational children. He always identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob because it's generational. And in Exodus 20, he tells us through his 10 commandments the part of who he is. He tells us who he is. There's this explanation he gives, a statement he gives to Moses. And when Moses says, who are you? Reveal yourself to me. Show me your glory. God passes by revealing himself, disclosing who he is to Moses. And what does he say? Verse 5 of Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents. Check this out to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's he saying? He's speaking to himself being a generational God. How I operate is not for you to fully understand, and it definitely won't be for you to understand if you merely look at your life. Because it's not just about your life. You have to examine the bigger picture of three to four generations of what happened before you and what will happen after you. Your uncles, your great uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, and what's to come. And this is so hard for us, I think. Because we live in this age of autonomy. We live in this age of individualism. And so what are we thinking about? We're thinking about our lives. We're thinking about the Uber that we have to get, <laughs> the mortgage we have to pay, the events we have to get our kids to. I moved away. I started a new thing. Some of us tried to escape. 
that generational sin. I moved into a different state. I left my old, old habitat. I left the place where I grew up. I left my family to get away, but we brought along that old family baggage, all the trauma, all the hurts, all the things that had happened before we were even conceived. God is a generational God. It says to the third, to the fourth generation. And that's why it's easier to copy the sins of our family than it is to come up with new ones on our own. And I know how we think in here, that, that's a both a nature and nurture thing. That's a DNA and, and, a, and a nurturing thing. It's an environment we grow up with as well. I want to add a third component. There's a spiritual aspect to this. That's the third component. The strongholds can be built over time in our family and over time and over time. And these patterns of thinking, these habits, how we respond to stress, when conflict happens, we saw this growing up or we live this out in our own life. Maybe we just don't talk about feelings in our family. And maybe we personally don't talk about our feelings as much either. We just stuff it. Well, how I respond is with three whiskeys after a bad day. That's how I cope with it. Or maybe pornography. That's where I get my release from. I handle temptation in that way. That's just what I do. And we, all these things fall down like dominoes. There's a ripple effect. There's a ripple effect. And those are the consequences. And what we never understand is that that stuff just doesn't stay contained to us. There's always collateral damage. There's always impact, even in what we don't see. And you might be thinking, well, Brandon, not me. That's not my story. I don't want to be anything like my mom. I don't want to be anything like she was and how I grew up. And so what did you do? You became the splitting image of the one who created your mom. That's what happened. And so you're like, well, no, I saw my dad, and I hated my dad. You don't know my dad, Brandon. He, he was never there. He was never a dad. He was never a good provider. He was lazy. He didn't pay child support. He was never present. And so what we did is we swung hard the other way. And so we value work to such that extreme degree. We became our productivity. We became our efficiency. We became the things that we accomplished because I don't want to be like my dad. And so we ended up a workaholic. And we gave up something that was completely opposite of our dad. In the process, we didn't even realize that we were becoming our grandfather. Do you see how this takes place? And our grandfather... Our, our father was done with that obsessive workaholic, and so that's why he wanted to be lazy. What are we doing? It's just this ripple effect. Three generations from us. These things just take place. John Wesley really puts it interestingly in here. He says, the devil doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off of. He just doesn't want you to stay in the saddle and ride. See how we sort of swing our pendulum? It just goes far and far to other reaches, and, and so we swing them so far to not be the things we grew up to be. I have to earn my way to heaven, and then that moves to know everything. You know, uh, I don't have to earn my way, but then now I'm just living off of grace, grace alone, and, and, and there's no truth involved in that. And just we swing the pendulums both ways, and this, this shouldn't catch us off guard because there's nothing new under the sun, the scriptures tell us. This is what we're looking at even in this morning. The enemy's not looking to play checkers with us. The enemy's playing the long game. He's a chess player. And with this and that, and if the enemy can have you say yes to this in your life right now or say no to this in your life right now, he's actually maybe messing with things that he wants to create two generations from you, something else he wants to do, and that's how hand-me-down sins are received. We have to be aware of that. Here's the second thing. Well, how do we hand them down then? 
How do we hand these down? And this is where I want to pivot a little bit because in a room this size, or for those that are watching online, we have individuals that are all in different kinds of relationships, but I want you to, as best as you can, even if you're not a parent, put on that parental hat. Put on that parental hat for this section because I want to ask the question, what are we handing down to our children? What are we handing down to our children's children? What is that exactly? And I think this can be the more challenging part of the, the teaching because if we just dealt with the first part of the teaching, the way we receive, it's like, hey, that's not a bad message. I actually, let, that was the greatest sermon I ever heard. I know my parents are screwed up. I've been trying to tell everybody my parents are screwed up. And now I can actually point my parents and maybe a few other people to this message online. They can listen to it because that is why I am the way I am. It's great revelation that I knew, honestly, years ago. Thank you. But that's why this part is so important. We can feel justified for all our flaws and all our failures and our shortcomings. And we can suggest those specific family members that that happened. But why we need to pivot is what is it going to mean for our kids one day? And perhaps what I'm really trying to say is 30 years from today, what are my kids going to be in therapy for? What are my kids going to be in therapy for? Because of me, because of what I'm doing. Some of the things that I haven't even done yet. See, if you're not married yet, don't kid yourself. It's not just going to be the ring. It's not just going to be the vow that change all those pieces, right? It's not able to just stuff away the generational things. In fact, sometimes that stressor of just married life brings that to the surface. <clears throat> But we all have those strongholds or those things that aren't going to necessarily get solved by a circumstance or an incident. So not only do the things we have to be aware of of what are happening to us and how they've played out in us, we have to be also aware that when it happens to others, at times what happens is it gets exaggerated, it gets amplified the second or third time around. And if you aren't convinced, let's just look at the scriptures again. I love this. Check this out. Abraham tells this white lie, right? First generation Christian. He'd never done this before. He's following Jesus imperfectly, even without knowing Jesus, right? <laughs> and he tells this little white lie. I shouldn't tell people that my wife's my sister, but you know, just trying to save my bacon a little bit. It is what it is. I shouldn't go down to Egypt, I know, but it is what it is. And he's telling this little white lie, which we know there's no such thing as a little white lie. It's deceit regardless, right? And Abraham would have been just like us. You know, he would have felt that, that, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be going back to Egypt. I shouldn't be doing that thing, the temptation to run back to the place that I shouldn't run to. And he felt that prick of the Holy Spirit inside of him even just prompting, but he decided to do what we would do and take the easy way. So Isaac, Isaac now, we're on the Isaac scene. He's heard the family stories. He's heard what Abraham's done. He's, he knows the stories that Abraham was not supposed to go back to Egypt, and God directly even tells Isaac, don't do this. And I love how James always reminds us that God is always going to give us a way out to escape when we're tempted. None of us can ever say, the devil made me do it. There's always a way out, and we've felt those things, right? Shouldn't be here. Ah, oh, he's not the right guy. She's not the right woman for me, right? It's not the situation that I should be in right now. And we feel that inward struggle. And if we just listen to the quiet voice, the whisper of the Holy Spirit, we can find ourselves and look for the outs and notice the outs that God is providing for us. But we drown it out with all other noises as much as we can. Like there's no other option but to dive into this. And there's Isaac. Don't go to Egypt. I'm going to bless you. Don't go to Egypt. And then what does he do? 
he's deceiving again. He's telling the lie. And this lie is even more outright. It's more outright than it was with Abraham. See how it's getting exaggerated a little bit, amplified. Well, who is Isaac's son? Jacob. You know the definition of Jacob? That name means liar. And Jacob was spending his entire life deceiving. So much so that, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, he would actually steal blessings for bowls of soup. And worst of all, this deceit, this, this deceit that Jacob would live out would just continue to live out in other things. Oh, I'm going to be Esau, my brother. Bless me as the firstborn. And then he ends up getting uh, with other individuals that have this kind of deceit in their life. Now, we don't know about Jacob's wedding, but basically his soon-to-be wife's father swaps out the bride, and in the last minute, Jacob marries one woman, wakes up with another one on his honeymoon. So I don't know about the wedding, again, because we don't have details, but my guess is there was an open bar, okay? Because <laughs> there's a lot of drinking going on. Jacob, like, if you don't know, like, come on, dude, right? Look at the deception. Do you see how it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? What happens to Jacob? Twelve sons. Jacob's ten sons deceive their father into thinking the eleventh brother has been murdered by wild animals. What did he put on his arms? Wild animal skin. So the sons take this deceit to yet another level. They exaggerate, amplify the sin. Here's what I'm trying to remind us of is that sin's not going to stay small. Sin is not content to stay small in your life. It wants to grow to its natural height which is large in all of our lives, all right? Well, okay, I, I mostly love God, but, you know, sometimes on the weekends I just, you know, I'm still in control, Brandon. I can stop at any time. And that's how sin will introduce itself as something this small, that's a small thing, that's not looking to take up so much of the room. Sin never comes at you where it's like a DUI with three fatalities. It may get there eventually, that's not how it starts. Sin doesn't start off as the heroin overdose. It doesn't start off as the prison sentence. It's always like, hey, I'm your little friend. I'm, I'm tiny. I'm, you're in control. You tell me when to go. I'll go. And then we release, and it builds, and it becomes to its full height in our life. And it may have seemed small, but that's just because its desire was to rule over you. Sin's desire is to rule your life. It's always going to cost you more than you wanted to pay. It's going to always take you to places you didn't want to go, and it's always going to keep you longer in a place that you didn't want to stay. And that's why Jesus' warning around sin can be so graphic to us. It can be so vulgar, shocking, and grotesque, but it makes a lot of sense. When Jesus is saying, cut off the offending hand, pluck out that eye, if you don't kill your sin, it's going to kill you. And that's why that's such harsh, hard language. But what we need to remember is it's not just going to kill us. It's not just our lives. It's not just our autonomous individualism. It's in our lifetime. It's in others' lifetimes long after we're gone. How are these things that we're permitting going to be exaggerated, amplified, cause great difficulty with our children and our children's children? What will be handed down in our life journal entries? Is it going to be our walk with God? Is it going to be our temptations that we face? If we don't point future generations in the right direction, they will be lost one day. All right, I want us to come up for air. <laughs> Let's 
Those are two hard words to hear. The third point I want to make here is a disruption. If we want to see change, it will require a disruption, a disruption that takes place, that all of these unchecked forces in our lives maybe have not been checked on in a while, and we need to disrupt that intentionally. This is the part of the message where I tell you that you have a choice. This is the part of the message where I tell you that this isn't just automatic for us, And it's not automatic just for you to be able to feel like a victim of the story. This is the part of the message where I say that, yeah, we've learned a lot. And we've learned a lot from our counselors and our professionals and our Celebrate Recoveries and our ministry opportunities and our connection. We've learned from all of those things and all of those things are good and helpful, but we still have a choice. And because of our ability to choose, we can't just simply write ourselves off as victims in the story. As, oh, you don't know what I had to grow up with. I get it. I get that there are some horrendous, horrible stories represented of our past and what we grew up with and what we saw, what we experienced. I get that many of us are predisposed to make it easier for us to dig into the things that we know are our Egypts and not the best for us. But we always have a choice. Ezekiel 18, God was irritated that because of his generational pattern that he's put into the world, people began seeing themselves as helpless, seeing themselves as not being able to follow God. And because of their sins, uh, because of the sins of their parents, they fell back on that crutch. And so he says this to confront this adage that had become common in this day. Ezekiel 18, 2, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. What's he doing here? He's saying, yeah, you get handed down sins these things, and I know you want to write yourself off as victims, as being helpless, but you cannot just point back to great-grandpa for this as to why you're doing the things you're doing. Every soul has a choice. Every soul can choose, and it's easier for us to drift. I get it because of the dominoes and because of the, the hand that many of us have been dealt, but I am encouraging each one of you here today watching online that you can break the cycle. You can choose to draw a line in the sand where you say today and say for your future, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will make God number one. It stops today. It stops right now. There's a line in the sand, and guess what? That line in the sand isn't written out of my human effort. It's written with the blood of Jesus Christ and the authority that Jesus brings into my life to paint a different story, to go forward with a new story. And that's going to mean we need to confront the dysfunction, guys. There is dysfunction in all of our... We're, we're, hey, we're a family. We're all dysfunctional. Welcome, right? But that's part of all of our stories that we have some form of, of, of dysfunction, and it begins by naming those specific sins that do have a hold on you. You have to name those things. By the power of the Spirit working in you and prompting to drive you towards what, what is it that I've held on to? What does, when I'm in crisis and stress, just boil to the surface? What is God trying to do here? 
He's always trying to overturn generational sin. And this is even hinted in his disclosure, not when he, when, when he gives his name. Do you remember what we read in Exodus 20? Those who hate me, they will be visited to the third and fourth generations. But those who love me, what does he say here? I will show love to a thousand generations. Do you see what our great God is doing? He's saying there's a limit to sin. I am mandating that limit to sin. I want to find someone that's willing to disrupt something. I want to find an individual that's willing to name something. I'm actively looking for someone to draw that bloodline in the sand and stand on the authority of the cross of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit that's in you, I'm looking for that one that's going to look at the third and fourth generation and say, no more because I'm gonna show, find a way in my life to show that love to a thousand generations as they rise up and they keep my word and they keep my covenants. That's who God's looking for because I don't know if you've looked at this, this is so biblical, he's looking for and he knows, you know what he's gonna find? He's gonna find a Joseph. He's gonna find a Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, fourth generations. The fourth generation, God's eyes are scanning, and he finally finds someone who rose up and decided not to call themselves a victim. Finally found someone who gets handed the family script, and they look, <laughs> Joseph's looking at the script, and he's like, you know what? I don't like how some of these parts are playing out. I don't like, it says that in this line that I'm supposed to become angry, that I become hostile, that I get vindictive. But you know what? I'm going to choose to tear this script up. I'm going to live the forgiveness story. I'm going to live out this powerful sense of identity that's going to come from my Father in heaven who loves me, who wants to bless the whole world through me, who wants to do things to reach the generations. And so I'm going to cling to the one I know to cling to, and this different story is going to play out differently. And so Joseph looks at his brothers and he doesn't, he doesn't pretend their sins were there. He doesn't pretend that what they had done was right. But instead, he says, you meant this for evil, but God wanted to tell a different story. God meant this for good, and he meant it because he has a plan for my life. And so the Joseph rose up, and he's so much like the risen Christ because he shows his wounds, the hurt that he goes through. He gets lied to. Potiphar's wife lies about him. There's a lot of wrong that's taken place in this, but in those circumstances, that's not going to have power over me anymore because I'm going to name the thing that needs to be tamed in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow him with that flow just coming out of me because mercy always triumphs over judgment. And so when that disruption takes place, this is the final piece for this morning, when the disruption takes place, that's when God's going to do the new thing. That's when God is up to the new thing that he wants to unleash generationally through you, through your life. And there's no lid. <laughs> Get ready. There's no lid to what God wants to do for you to reach the thousand generations there if you keep his covenants and you keep his word, what he wants to do good in the world through you and your story. That's a God chain reaction. And we gotta see, we gotta see ourselves as God's, God does, that we have this power and that we have this authority by being a child of God. And that allows us to have spiritual awakening, 
to understand that, yes, this is a DNA story, and yes, this is some of the nurture story, but it doesn't speak to my future and, and what I can have my hand on, what God has his hand on in my life. So if I look through the pages of Scripture, I can actually have some authority to be Hebrews 11 and shout to God, and when I need a little Samson's strength, he's going to give it. And when I need a little bit of David's passion, he's going to give it to me. I need a little bit of Abraham's faith, God's there. I need a little bit of Esther's boldness, he's going to give it to me. And then we get to choose to pull out of the things that are in us that have been binding us and holding us so tightly. I don't care. I don't care what your 23 and me says about you because you come from the line of Jesus Christ. You come from that family line, that new family tree, and that has authority under everything <laughs> to hand down something valuable and of worth that can be passed from generation to generation. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture. I had a brutal 2021. I think my 2021 was a little harder than my 2020. I know we all went through it in 2020. I get it. But I've shared my story a little bit. And just to give some cliff notes, 2021 was my mom. And just patterns of her addiction and her story led her to a place where eight, three quarters of her brain, dementia at 61, only because she fried everything here. And so we were trying to find her a home, and I was working, again, full-time with that counselor, really processing just my family lines of just alcoholism and drug addiction and gambling and everything that I know I'm a step away from. And I know that I can go back to that Egypt in a heartbeat. And so I was navigating a lot, like, what kind of parents are we going to be? What kind of dad am I going to be? Can you pull up that picture again? There's a guy at our church. Uh, his name's Brian Bigger. <laughs> and he was just attending with his family, just coming to Northern Hills, checking things out in that season, 2021. And I remember having that conversation with you and just processing with you, just working through what's got up to, and this is a little bit of the journey. And he took that picture. Bald guy's me, <laughs> balding guy. And that's my daughter. Brian texts me this picture and he tells me on Sunday, if that ain't winning, I don't know what is. You're set in a whole new family trajectory. Man. These stories, God using Brian as a vessel that put so much wind in my sails put me on so much more of that path of, yeah, I'm just taking baby steps. I'm going to keep following you, God. Those stories are saturated in this church. Story after story after story of God using your steps of faith to start a new thing. Don't let the enemy fool you. Do not let the enemy confuse you. God is doing a new thing in your life. And you have the opportunity to continue to fall in that family tree for the greatness and goodness of what he wants to do in your line. Keep fighting. Keep leaning on Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. Those are the hand-me-downs we want. Those are the hand-me-downs that all of us will be pleased with. Those are the hand-me-downs that I want them to speak about at my funeral. We want our lives to count. And that's how we want to be remembered. And so do you.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.